0: Good to see you all here this morning. As Troy mentioned, we'll be continuing our sermon series in the book of Joshua. Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6. We have finally come to this most familiar passage in the book of Joshua, the fall and defeat of Jericho. I expect many of you have been looking forward to this. I am somewhat intimidated and somewhat excited because whenever you preach on a passage that's this familiar, you never know exactly what people are thinking. But I I think we're going to have a a wonderful time as we study this story together. It's convicted me this week, and I expect it will convict you as well. Uh, Let me just say a word of prayer and ask God's guidance on our time together this morning. Father, we praise you for who you are, for the fact that you are the mighty God, that you are good and you are sovereign and you reign supreme over this world. Lord, that includes the lives of everyone that's sitting here today. Lord, as we seek to conform, to see our hearts and our minds conformed, our lives conformed to the image of Christ, we pray that you would enable that activity. Lord, we recognize that we can't change our own hearts, but we need you to do a sovereign work in our hearts and minds. So Lord, we submit to your will, we submit to your word in this time together this morning. Enable us to be conformed to the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. In 2005, the sociologist Christian Smith and his fellow researchers at the University of North Carolina published an interesting book entitled this, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. The book, which was the product of about 3,000 one-on-one in-depth Interviews with American teenagers asked them questions about their religious and moral convictions. Didn't make much of a splash on the sociological landscape of the day, but it has a lasting impact in Christian circles because it coined a new and relevant term within Christian communities. In the book, Smith argued that the majority of American teens believed in what he called moralistic, therapeutic... (laughs) deism. Rather than ascribing to what classically would have been known as Christian doctrine and thought, the vast majority of the American teens that he interviewed in 2005 believed in moralistic, therapeutic deism, a general, vague idea of what morality looked like oriented toward the therapeutic health of the individual with a deistic God that was far removed and unconcerned with the lives that they were living. Let me give you the five pillars of moralistic, therapeutic deism, as Smith argued. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Any warning lights going off in anybody's heads yet? Thank you. Mm -hmm. It gets worse. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And last but not least, number five, Good people go to heaven when they die. This was the summary of these interviews with 3,000 American teenagers in 2005. This is how they articulated the doctrines of the Christian faith. Summarizing the position, Smith says this in his book. In short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. God as a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. These are the tenets of moralistic, therapeutic deism. But why, you may ask, do we care about the feelings and findings of a 20-year-old sociological questionnaire? Let me suggest three reasons that should matter to us today. First, the answers of these teens reflect what they believed their parents actually believed. They reflect what they thought their parents were ascribing to, not verbally in their articulation of doctrine, but practically in the way they lived their lives. They may claim to believe in a sovereign God, but functionally, they were deists. They may claim to believe that God was involved in their lives, but functionally, they thought God was just there to be a therapy guide for their lives. And these teenagers, as they sought to articulate their parents' worldview, articulated this. Second, what was a growing trend in 2005 has now manifest itself in mainstream Christianity today. The teens of 2005 are now today's parents. For a little bit of reference and to date myself, I was a freshman in high school in 2005. This was how those teenagers articulated the Christian faith, and this is now mainstream Christianity. And thirdly and finally, it is this form of Christianity light that is offended generally by the book of Joshua and very specifically by God's treatment of people in Jericho in Joshua chapter six. Joshua six in the next few chapters, the conquest of the land, directly confront four out of the five of those pillars of moralistic therapeutic deism. And as we walk through these next few chapters together, if you find yourself offended by what we read this morning, I would encourage you to consider whether you've settled for a watered-down version of Christianity. If you find yourself offended by what this story teaches, ask yourself, have I settled for moralistic, therapeutic deism? But before we get into the actual text of chapter 6, I want to make sure we take a moment and remind ourselves of where we're at in the book. Remember that Joshua is the story of how God's people enter and conquer the Canaanites that are in the promised land. It's the story of how God fulfills his plans for his people by his power in his timing. It's a story about God, first and foremost, though the Israelites participate. We finished our first section last week, chapters 1 through 5, the preparation or the crossing into the land of promise. This week, we start the second section chapters 6 through 12 deal with the conquest, the taking of the land of promise. Now this week, we come to what is probably the most familiar story in the entire book of Joshua, the defeat and fall of Jericho. But I want us to look at it through the lens of what does it say about God and what does it say about our faith. We begin by examining the strategy Joshua didn't have. Look at verse 1 through 5. The text opens with a situation in Jericho. Read verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Pause for a moment. What Joshua is going to do here is he's going to juxtapose the strategy of Jericho against the strategy of Jehovah. God's strategy versus human strategy. What is Jericho engaged in? Well, they're engaged in this defensive posture. They're prepared for a siege. Did you see that? They are shut up inside and outside. The gates are down. The, the, the hatches are battened, right? The, the doors are closed, and they are prepared for a long, drawn-out siege. Much like you would have been familiar with if you've watched old you know, um, Middle Ages videos with tall walls and battering rams, and they were expecting to have the Israelites camp outside their city and try to wait them out. So they're prepared to defend themselves. And notice that there's no travel. No one's going in, no one's coming out. They are all staying put, thinking we can conquer this enemy. Thinking they can't take us as long as we stay behind our tall, barricaded walls. Now, again, I noted this last week. We're going to talk about this multiple times over the course of the next few weeks. Jericho here is not surrendering. We have to note this. Jericho, this city, is prepared for the oncoming assault, and they are actively in a rebellion against Israel and God. They're not innocent. They are actively defying God. They watched God part the Jordan River. They watched the Israelites march across on dry land. God has put fear in their hearts as we read about in chapter 5 verse 1 last week. And yet in spite of all that, they're saying, we can take them. We can take them. Now, this strategy, this worldly strategy is contrasted with the strategy of God. Look at what God tells Joshua in verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. God again affirms that he has already won this victory. We talked about that in chapter one. We talked about that last week in chapter five. God is guaranteeing the victory because God is going before his people. And he gives them their marching orders in verses three through five. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Okay, this is Israel's game plan. This is Jehovah's strategy for defeating the city of Jericho. I want you to take seven days, and on day one through six, I want you to march around the city once. And I want you to have seven priests with seven trumpets surrounding the Ark of the Covenant playing their trumpets, playing their horns. And I want you to carry the Ark of Covenant. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with his people. The Ark went before them into the Jordan River. Now the Ark surrounds the city of Jericho. It's worth noting. But then things change a little bit on day seven. Now it's seven trumpets and seven priests and the Ark of the Covenant... But this time, I want you to march around the city seven times. And this time, there's going to be a long blast of the trumpets. You're all to shout, and I am going to do something to marvel at. Remember when we talked about that a few weeks ago? The Lord is about to do something marvelous. That I am about to win the victory all on my own. I'm going to call the walls to fall down, and you just go up and take the city. I find it funny that the song we know about Joshua chapter 6 is Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. It's wrong on two counts. Joshua did not fight, and it wasn't a battle. The walls collapsed themselves, and all they had to do was waltz into the city. This is God's strategy for defeating this enormous walled city. March around it, play some horns, carry the Ark of the Covenant. And notice here that Israel participates, but God's role is clearly primary here. The Israelites are not exercising some keen military strategy. The Israelites are simply relying on God. Their only action is to do what God has called them to do, to trust that God is going to do what he's promised to do. Israel's strategy was faith-emphasized. God devised a strategy that was so clear that the only way it could have succeeded is if God acted. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about if it's something you're set out to do and God doesn't show up, you fail? God devises the strategy so that if he doesn't show up, the Israelites fail. And this is precisely how Hebrews defines faith in the 11th chapter, is it not? Turn to the right in your Bibles, to the book of Hebrews. I just want to read one verse quickly. In Hebrews chapter 11... The author of Hebrews defines faith for us. And then we get a long list of all of the things that show the faith of the people in the Old Testament. But think about Hebrews 11 verse 1 in light of what we're seeing the Israelites having to do here. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me read that again. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We tend to think of faith as some ethereal thing out there, some intellectual exercise where hypothetically God is real and hypothetically he's going to act in our lives. But that's not how Hebrews defines faith. It says it's an assurance of things hoped for. It is a conviction of things not yet seen now put your shoes or your feet back in the shoes of the Israelites in chapter 6. They're staring at the enormous walls of Jericho, and God says, just march around them. They'll fall down. Do the Israelites have the assurance of things not yet seen? Do they trust and listen to what God has to say? Because that's part of faith. The application here for us is that faith, real faith, listens and trusts. Faith, saving faith, listens to what God has to say and trusts that He will do what He has promised. Does that sort of faith define your Christian walk? As you face the trials and challenges of this life, do you go to what the Word says and say, what does God's Word say? Or do you run to your social media account and see what the wisdom of the world would tell you? Let me give you some examples. How about in our evangelism? Last fall, we were studying 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the principle that Paul kept driving home to the Corinthian church was, it is not the messenger, it's the message. It is not the man, it is not the human wisdom that changes anyone's hearts. It is the power of the gospel and the role of the Holy Spirit. But we find ourselves trying to convince people to place their faith in Christ, don't we? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't work apologetically, that we shouldn't work to demolish strongholds. We talked about that last week. But ultimately, are we relying in God's strategy, the clear articulation of the gospel to change people's hearts? Or are we relying on our own intelligence and our own wisdom? Are we looking to God's word or are we looking to worldly wisdom? How about what God teaches on the church? In Matthew chapter 16, after Peter has confessed the truth of the gospel, Christ looks at him and he says, yes, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church on this faithful proclamation of the gospel, I will build my church, and that church will be God's plan A for reaching the nations with the gospel. Do we trust that God's plan, God's word, is true, or do we go try to find other ways and other means to accomplish God's purposes? How about in your sexual purity or chastity in your marriage? When the world is screaming to us, That any refrain, any any tightening or not acting out on any sexual impulse you might have is somehow making you less human, less fulfilled, less happy in this life? Do we trust that God's word and God has a plan because he created us? Do we read Matthew chapter 5 in Christ's Sermon on the Mount where he says anyone that looks at a woman with lust in his eyes will be guilty of adultery? Do we trust God's plan that he knows what's best for us? Or do we listen to the world? And what they tell us will make us happy. And last but not least, how about your marriage? Do you read Ephesians 4 and the way God defines the roles in marriage, the way God defines the goal of marriage, the way God puts our happiness in the framework of his glory and say, yes, Lord, I will listen to what you say because you designed marriage as one man, one woman, for a lifetime? Or do we go, when things get hard, and ask the world what they think about marriage? I could go on and on. I could list any number of different things. In fact, I would encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount this afternoon. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as Jesus said, The world says this, or you've been told this, but it is this. Anger, retaliation, anxiety, lust, any number of things. And Jesus says, are you going to believe the world's wisdom or are you going to believe what God has said? The question we have to ask ourselves is will we listen and trust what God's word has said? Or will we settle for a moralistic, therapeutic deism? Worshiping a God who keeps us at arm length and isn't really concerned with our obedience and our trust and our faith. A God who's there when we need him, when we have problems, but who doesn't really expect us to live in accordance with his word. Is your faith defined by trust and listening to what God has said? And Joshua exemplifies this so well. He exemplifies this sort of faith in chapter 6, because now he has to deliver God's battle plan to millions of people. In verses 6 through 21, we see the battle that Israel didn't fight. Just imagine being Joshua, calling together your senior advisors, the leaders of the people, and saying, this is our battle plan for tomorrow, guys. Look at verse 6 and 7. He defines the battle plan. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. He turns to the priests, and he says, Well, here's what I want you to do. Pick up seven horns and take up the Ark and go out before the people. And then he turns to the people and he says, Here's what I want you to do march in circles around the city. See, we know this story too well. Because when we hear that, we go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Right? Imagine being on the front lines of a military engagement. This is life or death. They're shooting real arrows at you. And you're marching around in circles. This is God's battle plan. This is what God tells them to do, and Joshua just faithfully delivers the word to the people. Pretend for a moment that you don't know the end of the story. And be honest, if you were in Joshua's army, if you were sitting there as a senior advisor with him, listening to this plan, get detailed, like, you met with the Lord and came up with that? Like, I think Joshua has lost his mind. I think he spent a few too many days in the wilderness. That would have been my response. Remember, Jericho is a fortress. This isn't an easy assault. This city is virtually siege-proof. It has lush vegetation and is fed by natural springs to allow it to hold out for a long time. It's experienced in battle as one of the oldest cities known to man in a strategically important place in this land. They're used to fighting. It's highly defensible. Like, when archaeologists go back and look at it, there may have been as many as two walls between 9 and 15 feet high. And this is an army that didn't have modern siege equipment. They didn't come out of the desert with battering rams and siege towers and all of this. And we miss the fact that the Israelites would have been so tempted to say, Joshua has lost his mind. This is God's plan? That's why it's all the more amazing that they don't reject God's words here. The following verse give us the report of the battle in verses 8 through 21. I just want to walk through this. We're not going to spend a lot of time because you're probably familiar. But let me just walk through this. There's three sections. There's day one. Then there's days two through six that are summarized. and Then there's day seven. First, day one stresses obedience and silence. Look at verse 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. Day one stresses the obedience of the people and also their silence. They were still before the Lord. They were waiting on the Lord to act. Sometimes we're a little too quick to talk. Here they're called to be silent before the Lord as the ark circles the city. As God's presence surrounds this rebellious city of Jericho. And it's worth noting that there is a parallel event to this, I believe, at the Red Sea in Exodus 14, 13, and 14. When Moses has led the people out of Egypt, and they are waiting against the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh and his army are coming up behind them, he makes an amazing statement in Exodus 14, 13, and 14. He says this, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It's the exact same thing that Joshua Commands them to do, he said, be silent and wait on the Lord to fight for you. So day one emphasizes this obedience and silence. Then day two through six it seems to function to build the tension in this story. Look at verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. It stresses their obedience again, but it feels like you, you feel the tension heightening in the story. Day one, they march around the city. Day two, they march around the city. Day three, they march around the city. Day four, day five, day six. What's going to happen on day seven? Look at verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early. These people rise early a lot. Okay? I'm not a morning person, but Joshua and the people are constantly rising early. I'm just going to put that out there. At the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you this city. Now hold on. And then he pauses the story. You see that? We expect to jump down to verse 20 and find out what happens to the city. Instead, he says, hold on. Let me hold you right here at the point of tension because I got something important for you to understand. We get this little special condition in verses 17 through 19. Look at this. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. He pauses the story here as he's telling it and says, these are some special things you need to understand. First, everything in this city is devoted to the Lord for destruction. That term devoted is set apart. It's the same term that gets used throughout the book of Leviticus for the things that are put in the tabernacle to be devoted wholly to the Lord. It's the idea of setting things apart for God's will and God's purposes. And here they say the entire city is to be set apart. Later on in the story, the Israelites are going to be allowed to take plunder and they're going to be allowed to take the gold and silver and things like that from the city. But here, this first city, God says, this is mine. This is mine. With the exception of Rahab and her family. We'll come back to that here in just a moment. And then verse 18 is some of the most ominous foreshadowing I've ever seen. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted for destruction. Lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. If you've read ahead in chapter 7 you know that's exactly what happens. We'll talk about that next week. But he foreshadows what would happen if the Israelites disobey this command. And then he says, we're going to offer all of this up and devote it to destruction, except for these metals that are going to go in the house of the Lord. But this city is God's. Then he comes back to the story. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And each of these sections stresses the obedience of the Israelites. They did precisely what God called them to do. They weren't engaged in some activity on their own. They were doing the Lord's will. Over the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about holy war and how holy war is a unique thing in history where God tells a people to execute judgment on his behalf. Deuteronomy 20 talks about how the Israelites were supposed to do war normally, but in this situation, God says, this is exactly what I want you to do because the iniquity of the Amalekites has come to fruition. But it stresses the obedience of the Israelites. Do you see that? it repeats over and over and over again how they did exactly what God told them to do. But I also want to notice something else from this section that I think is really fascinating. Did anyone else notice, as you were reading through that section, that the actions of the Israelites were more an act of worship than an act of war? Did you pick up on that? The activity was to be initiated by God's presence, by the Ark of the Covenant. God would go before and call the people to action. And then, who's out in front leading the army? It's not the generals. It's the priests. Right? And the seven trumpets blowing throughout the procession is really more of a victory celebration than it is of a call to arms. They're already celebrating the victory that they haven't even seen yet. Then the people shout in response and the whole city is offered up as a tithe or an offering, the first fruits of the land to God. Here, this story stresses the obedience of the Israelites, but the victory is won through worship. Not through their military strength, but through their act of worship and devotion to the Lord. See, the story of Jericho falling, I think, is... Israel's victory is their faith exercised. They're called to put their intellectual trust and faith in God into practice. They're called to do what they have said they believe. And that application is the same for us today, is it not? Faith, real faith, obeys and worships God. Real faith doesn't save us through our works, but it calls us to obedience and worship of God. Someone whose heart has been transformed and has been redeemed can't help but long to worship and obey God. Not perfectly, not without ever failing, but the cry of our heart should be to obey and to worship God. We see this throughout scripture. Faith manifests in obedience in James chapter 2, the New Testament book, faith without works is what? Dead. Not because the works save, but because saving faith works. And, John, or, and Jesus affirmed these words in John chapter 14 when he said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Not perfectly, not without fail, but the desire of our heart should be obey if faith is present in our lives. But the desire of our heart should also be to worship God. In Romans 12, the application of 11 chapters of incredible theology in Paul's incredible book of Romans is what? Submit your lives on the altar as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Or our theme verse when we were going through Malachi in Hebrews chapter 12 Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I have a feeling Joshua and the Israelites would have amended that as they watched the walls of Jericho fall. The question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, will we obey and worship God Does our faith obey and worship or will we settle for moralistic, therapeutic deism? Thinking God is out there somewhere, but he doesn't really call me to do anything. He has no binding laws on my life. He asks me not to do anything other than kind of be around to help me when I need him. Will we obey and worship out of faith? But even that is not the end of the story. Because the conclusion of the story, verses 22 through 27, in many ways test our faith as much as what came before. In verses 22 through 27, we have the ending we don't appreciate. Here, in these last few verses, we see two inversions of our modern expectations as 21st century Americans. We see God offering undeserved mercy to Rahab, and we see God bringing unpleasant judgment on the city of Jericho. First, undeserved mercy. Look at verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab with her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Now skip verse 24 and go down to 25. We'll come back to 24. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. In this pagan and idolatrous city, we'll talk about what was going on in the city of Jericho in future weeks. It will shock you. But in this pagan and idolatrous city, God plucks one family out and rescues them. Not because they deserved it, but because God is God. Rahab is saved with her family. She's integrated into the people of Israel, and she's even included in Christ's lineage in Matthew chapter one verse five. Here in this final section, God saves the last person we would expect. God saves someone who absolutely did not deserve to be saved. but she placed her faith in Yahweh. She turned from her idolatry and allegiance to Jericho and turned toward God and said, God, I need you to save me. And the walls all the way around her house fell down and her one house was left standing. But in addition to this undeserved mercy, which bothers our modern sensibilities, we all also have God's unpleasant judgment. Look at verse 24 and we see God's wrath on Jericho. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Now, what was included in the city? Go back to verse 21. They devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And our modern sensibilities recoil. Does anyone else find themselves going, God, how dare you? How could you command the Israelites to destroy an entire city? And again, we'll go in in coming weeks to what the Canaanites were engaged in, the horrific activities that they were engaged in. But for the moment, I want us to let that tension build. God calls the Israelites to destroy everything and everyone in the city of Jericho except Rahab and her family. And it does us no good to sidestep and try to justify that away in Scripture. Here, in addition to God saving the last person we would expect, God's judgment is more comprehensive than we desire. And we need to take that seriously. The fact of the matter is, here in Joshua chapter 6, God saves who he wants and God judges who he wants. And we as modern Americans look at God and we say, this is my definition of justice, how dare you God? Because we do not understand the depravity of sin. And we judge God by our definition of right and wrong. And we shake our fist at God and say, how could you do that? As if we somehow know better than God does. It's precisely the point that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9. Turn to the right in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Dealing with what is undeniably a difficult subject of God's election in chapter nine of Romans, Paul, I think, puts his finger right on the pulse of why a text like this bothers us. Look at Romans nine verses 14 or verse 14. Paul writes, "What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God on God's part? By no means. That subject will come up more in chapter 11 of Joshua, almost that exact same phrase. We're going to talk about it when we get there. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience, 400 years in the case of the Amalekites, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which has prepared beforehand for glory. The fact of the matter is, in Joshua chapter 6, we are offended because we want to be God. But God saves whom he wants and God judges whom he wants. Because we all deserve God's wrath. We minimize it and pretend like sin isn't that big of a deal. And a story like Joshua 6 says, you don't understand how big of a deal sin is. No one is innocent. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. But God chooses to show mercy on some anyway. Think about that. Rahab deserved God's justice just as much as everyone else. We deserve God's justice just as much as everyone else. And yet God reaches in and chooses to show mercy to some of us. And yet we miss that and we shake our fist at God and we say, how dare you? fact of the matter is, faith repents and submits. Faith, real faith in the God of the Bible, not our deistic idea of who God is, repents like Rahab, recognizes our sin, recognizes how far we've fallen short of God's glory, and repents of it all and says, God, only you can save me. It doesn't explain away the sin. It doesn't justify the sin. It simply says, I need someone to save me because I can't. And that's where Christ comes in the story. Because Christ did what only God could do for us. He didn't look at us and say, you know, the sin isn't a big deal. That's not that bad. We'll just overlook it. He said Christ came to earth and he lived for us and he bore God's wrath on the cross. That's what we celebrate in communion. Not that sin isn't a big deal, but the sin is an enormous deal, and so our salvation is huge. We're called in faith to repent like Rahab and to celebrate God's mercy. But we're also called, like Joshua, to submit and to affirm God's judgment. To say, God, you know what is right and wrong. You know what needs to happen in the world. I am not God. And I'm going to trust you that you are going to do what's right and good. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we repent and submit? Or will we settle for moralistic, therapeutic deism? Will we settle for a God that we can craft and that we can mold into our image or we will, will we submit to the God of the Bible and His justice and His goodness and His love? Faith requires these things. It requires us to trust and to listen. It requires us to obey and worship, and it requires us to repent and submit. The story is told of a tightrope walker who at one point wanted to make his ability to walk... Across, I mean, that, that kind of stuff scares me. I think it should, like all normal people walking on tightrope across a high... That should terrify us. Anyway, there's these people that love that sort of thing, right? And he, he wanted to build his reputation a little bit more, so he sent out word to all of the major news agencies, and he said, at the end of the year, I'm going to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. Well, it went viral, Right? Everybody found out about it. and Everybody was like, this is going to be something exciting. I can't wait to go and see it. And when it came around, in the end of the year, people showed up all over the place to watch this man, walk across Niagara Falls on a wire. But when they showed up, he said, I've actually got something better than that. You all came to see me walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. I'm actually going to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope with a wheelbarrow with somebody in it. And the whole crowd went, no, there's no way. And he goes, do you think I can do it? Everybody was hesitant to respond until one reporter that had reported on this individual across the country at his different escapades said, I'm sure you can do it. I've seen you tightrope across all sorts of wires all over the world. I am sure you can do it. Imagine the tightrope walker's response to this reporter. Get in. If you believe that I can do it, get in the wheelbarrow. That's the point of Joshua chapter 6. It's all well and good to say intellectually that you have faith. Will you get in the wheelbarrow? Do you believe God enough and his promises enough that you will get in the wheelbarrow? Because that sort of faith listens and trusts. That sort of faith obeys and worships. That sort of faith repents and submits. Joshua 6 forces us to choose between real faith in the God of the Bible and some vague religious notion that we craft for ourselves of God. It argues that God doesn't just want everyone to be nice, but God is working out a plan for His glory. That the chief aim of life isn't just to be happy in some therapeutic sense, but to be genuinely fulfilled in God and His goodness. God, it argues that God is actively involved in the world. He's actively involved in your life. He cares what's going on. He's not some God that removed himself from the equation. And it argues that not everyone will get into heaven. The question is, are we going to exercise real faith and get in the wheelbarrow and trust that God knows what he's doing? So are you going to exercise real faith? Or are you going to settle for moralistic, therapeutic deism? The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, this story is so humbling to to my own heart. As I think of all of the things that I think are too big for you, that I imagine you can't accomplish, Lord, help us to submit to your will. Help us to trust in your goodness and your promises. Help us to get in the wheelbarrow. In Christ's name, amen.